We are... So remember the numbers are weird in the book of Hebrews? I forgot my water bottle today, so you get my beautiful pink coffee cup. It was on clearance. Come on. So remember how the numbers are weird? And we kind of had to cover half of chapter four to get to all of chapter five. Well, in order to cover all of chapter six, we kind of have to do half of chapter five to get all of chapter six. And I'm not going to make any promises, but we might have to do half of chapter six over again to get all of chapter seven. You see how this goes. So, so remember in Hebrews five, just a little bit, just because of what he says is kind of crazy. Starting in verse 11. About this, we have much to say. All right, we can't start there. He's been talking about Melchizedek. He's been talking about how Jesus is great and greater than the angels. Jesus is great because he's in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is great because he's better than Moses. And we have a whole bunch to say about this. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Yikes. Like, I have a whole bunch more stuff to say, but it's really hard because you're dumb. (laughs) It's not that rude, but it is pretty rude, okay? Because you're so dull of hearing. Because this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you all over again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is just a little child. Oh, so he's saying like spiritually speaking, you can't even handle like oatmeal. You just you just need infamil. Like you just need milk. You are so not spiritually mature. The um, in the Greek words of this, it's worse. You don't even know your ABCs. There, there's a term that he uses that would refer to kids learning the alphabet. So he's saying, you guys, you don't even know the alphabet about Jesus. You're so spiritually immature. Gosh. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So I'm really glad that last sentence is in there because if he's writing to the Hebrews, the the Christians that used to be Jewish and were raised Jewish and are, are, uh, their ancestors were Jewish, I would think that they would know something about Yahweh God, right? Because they grew up, I mean, Like, here we are, Christians in southern Indiana. We have to look up all this Jewish stuff to figure out the significance of what Jesus said. But they grew up in it, and it's just as normal as knowing that you don't spread your cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving on your biscuit like it's jelly. Right? None of you do that, right? Okay. We had an international bunch of people from all over the world over for Thanksgiving once to show them what an American Thanksgiving was like. And several people, I think they were the Australians, promptly took a biscuit, dipped their knife in the cranberry sauce and spread it on the biscuit. And I was like, ah, 
no, that's wrong. They were like, it was jelly. These people knew they were Jewish, right? So you think they would know something. And the writer of Hebrews says, I can't even tell you about Melchizedek and about how Jesus is so much better than angels and how he's even better than Moses because you don't even know your ABCs. You don't even know the basic stuff. And in contrast to that, what's the opposite of not knowing? Is the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Whoa, I want that, right? So in contrast to being immature, being mature is powers of discernment trained. So that means like when you hear somebody say something, you can discern, is that a good thing that I want to, you know, is the Lord in that or is that evil? And is that apply to my, to my flesh? And does that, does that woo me towards sin? Does that woo me towards increasing my faith in Jesus, my savior? Or does that help me get my identity from my accomplishments? Or how much money I make? Or what great thing I've done? Discernment. This whole part about you should all be teachers. Can you imagine if first century and you're a Gentile and you were raised worshiping this whole orchestra of gods and goddesses and all kinds of weird sacrifices and all kinds of weird rituals. You never knew which was which. And you heard about Jesus and you believed in him. And that he took away your sin. And he did what none of those Roman gods and goddesses could ever do. This Jewish Messiah, he came from the Jewish people. And then you met a Jewish person that had followed Jesus. You'd be like, whoa, this person is going to teach me so much stuff. I'm going to learn so much about Jesus. When he says, you should all be teachers by now. He was counting on them to spread the gospel, to go out and preach. And none of them were able to. So then he drops another bomb in chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Okay, so before we read this, just think in your head, what is like the most elementary teaching about Jesus? Like, Jesus loves me. You know, think about Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. You think maybe just Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Uh, we, were at, we were at an apologetics breakfast last Saturday. Not something we always do. But um, somebody asked a guy, if you're not into apologetics, what should a basic church member be able to explain? And the first thing he said was the Trinity, and I just laughed. Because the Trinity is like the most complicated, mysterious, bizarre, amazing thing that I think anybody that thinks that they can explain it doesn't understand it. <laughs> so, so elementary teachings. Here's what the writer of Hebrews describes as the elementary teachings. 
Let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. (laughs) That's like all we talk about, right? Those are the ele- those are the elementary teachings, and those all sound like a really big deal to me. The instruction about washings is going to be some of it's going to be instructions about baptism. The instruction about washings in here you don't want to read this in a uh, in a Pro- Protestant Reformation eyes, whether it was infant baptism or adult baptism or believers baptism and all that. All of that became an issue in the 1500s. This was written in the 100s, okay? So this washings is, should we wash our hands before we eat? This is, should we do a ceremonial washing of our face and our head before we read the scripture? That's what this was about. And of course, we know where Jesus fell on that because everybody yelled at him because he taught his disciples that they could go ahead and eat on the Sabbath without washing their hands first. That the washings weren't any big deal at all. The repentance from dead works and the faith toward God. That was one of the critical first things that Jesus taught when he would call a disciple. Leave this and follow me. Sell all your own. Follow me. Give this up. and Follow me. Leave this stuff behind. Quit doing this. Go and sin no more, right? The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These were basic teachings that resurrection of the dead is going to happen. We're all going to come back to life. We're all going to get new bodies. This this thing that that I'm in, um, I was was looking at obituaries, and we were at this funeral last week, and... um, you guys, you know, you see an obituary and it shows what the person looked like in the last, you know, month or so. And in all the obituaries, there's this one and the picture was like from 1975. And it was this dude and he was just a stud. And it said he was like 94 and, you know, died in hospice care. And I was like, he's not 94. And then that got me thinking, ooh, in my obituary, do I want... My young stud picture with my Asian body from when I lived in Asia and I ate really healthy and walked two miles to work and back every day. Or, you know, it was funny. Resurrection of the dead, we're going to get a completely new body. The Bible says that we'll be recognizable. You'll be able to recognize people's tribe, tongue, and language. Like what culture they came from. That kind of thing which is kind of a mystery. And you'll be able to recognize who they are, but we'll have a completely new body. And then there's an eternal judgment. And Jesus talked about the eternal judgment. And it is a real deal. And it's, it's scary or it's fantastic, depending on where you fall on that, right? So those are all elementary teachings. And now we're going to move on from that. This is what we'll do if God permits. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift 
and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Okay, what in the world did he just say? We're going to move on from these elementary teachings, and we're going to talk to big, about big-time stuff. Because we don't have to go over these elementary teachings again. Because you either have it and you're embracing it and you want to grow into bigger things. Or you have given up and you've left. Which is kind of terrifying. So I get with my Wednesday morning donut council and we go over this and we start discussing. What does this mean? And... Um, in church history in the body of Christ, there have been a couple different issues and entire denominations have set sail and taken over about the interpretation of these verses. And I think we talked about it when we did the New City Catechism. And a bunch of it is wrapped around this question of, can you lose your salvation or not? Once you get saved, if you, you know, you're a little kid in Sunday school, I know, I know a lady that uh, got saved when she was four and has just lived this rock star Christian life her whole life, right? Other people get saved in Sunday school when they're four and then they go off the rails. What in the world? Has this person lost their salvation? And what's funny about that is that's not the question he's addressing here. The context of this is let's continue to mature. Because if you're going to continue to mature, you're not going to go back and re-crucify Jesus and redo all this stuff. You're going to keep growing. Also in talking about this, he says, they've fallen, verse 6, they've fallen away to restore them. It says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God. When you came to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and rose again, the Holy Spirit was put in you as a seal. That's what Ephesians it says, you were sealed. In, earlier in Ephesians, it says, you were seated in Christ in the, heavenly bless, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're already there. Whoa. So one theory that comes up out of this is these people that grow up and then they deny Christianity and they leave, they were never saved in the first place. And I have all kinds of trouble with that reasoning because that means, are any of us saved? If I sin tomorrow, if I go berserk and steal a whole bunch of hubcaps and go to prison, does that mean all of my sermons were garbage and I was never Christian in the first place? I don't think that's the case. So, what are you doing? You're confused in the Bible? You go read other parts of the Bible. Because <laughs> it really does interpret itself. So, I didn't look on the calendar to see when we did this. 1 Corinthians 3 says some very interesting things about this. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. 
First Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Oh, there's that word foundation again, right? Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation, so if anybody builds on Jesus with, now I lost my spot, oh, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, whatever your faith in Jesus, whatever you build with your life, with that faith, each one's work will become shown. Everybody's going to see what you accomplish in your life for the day will disclose it. Uh Oh, so now we're getting into judgment day. So judgment day, everything that you did with your faith is going to be shown. It'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each work has done. Each person has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So if I have faith and I build, this is all poetically, figuratively speaking, right? If I build a stick mansion out of sticks and twigs, on the judgment day, my work, the thing that I built, it says is going to be tested by fire. Is my little stick house going to survive through fire? Not at all, right? I'm just picking on... So, Jim, you're in line with my family, so that's why you get picked on so much. Because I can't totally... If Jim builds on his faith with gold bricks and rubies, and he builds this mansion out of rubies, even with a broken microwave, and it's tested by fire, and it survives, that's a totally different thing than my stick house, right? Which one of us is going to be in heaven? We're both. This isn't about salvation. This is about the fruit of your life. The fruit of the work that you did as you lived. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, my stick mansion, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. So that sheds some light on, okay, but what if I'm a Christian, but I completely live for myself and I don't do any, I don't bear fruit, I don't accomplish things. This is where we are going to talk about covenant. Because it's Jesus that saved you. It says in Ephesians, it's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. Otherwise, so it's so that nobody can boast. Nobody can brag. If, if, I get, if my house is on fire and I'm completely unconscious and a firefighter carries me out to the front yard, I'm not going to stand out and be like, I'm so awesome. I got saved by somebody else. Jesus did it. And he did it. That, so after he does that, and this really happens, right? If the fireman carries me out of the burning house, and then I punch the fireman, and I say, you stupid idiot, I didn't want to be rescued from that fire. Does that change the fact that he carried me out from the fire? He might feel like throwing me back in the fire. 
But it doesn't change the fact that he carried me out. He did the salvation. Oh, man. It's impossible once you've left to crucify Jesus again. So I think there is some room in here to really, truly, sincerely in your heart of hearts, leave and deny and quit. But I don't think people do that very often. And here's what this means. I think there's a whole bunch of, I know a couple of them that were Christian people and then they wanted to live by their flesh and they wanted to do a bunch of stupid things. And so they said, Christianity isn't real. I'm not going to follow Jesus. And they went and did a whole bunch of stupid things. And then about 10 years later, they have a couple phrases and a couple words and a couple comments. It helps me see they really do still have faith. They really still do believe Jesus is who Jesus is. They just didn't want to follow him through that hard time. And I don't think they're like these people. I think there's a different level of, I don't want any part of it, right? The other thing about this is the way it's worded and the way we word it is always about other people. It's always about us trying to figure out, is so-and-so still a Christian? Is he still faithful? Is she going to go to heaven or not when she dies? And this is all in here, not for us to judge other people, but it's to encourage us to continue running after Jesus. So let's go back to Genesis. Oh my gosh. We got to spend a whole lot of time in the Old Testament if we're talking about Hebrews, right? Genesis 15. Good grief. All right. We're going to go there. We're not going there yet, but we're going there. Land that is, uh, this is verse Hebrews 6, 7. Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose its sake is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. And in the end is to be burned. This is, remember Jesus in Matthew 25, he said, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And the people said, when did we ever do that? He said, when you do it, the least of these people, you did it for me. Those people were actively doing things with their faith in Jesus. He goes on. I am not afraid of this, of this being like you. He says this to the Hebrews. I think you're still running out after God. God is not unjust. He won't overlook the love that you have shown. But uh, skip down to verse 11. I desire each one of you show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. Don't worry about whether so-and-so is going to heaven or hell. But you run after Jesus. Have that full assurance. So you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know what's really great? If I see somebody in a fallen state, I can go up. This is a classic tale, right? Somebody falls off their bike. They wipe out. And I can walk up to them and say, boy, you really wiped out on your bike. 
Is that helping them at all? Does that give them any aid whatsoever? They're laying there in my front yard. Gosh, you're really messed up. No, it works the same way with sin. Gosh, you're really sinning bad. Gosh, you're really handling this difficulty in your life in the worst way possible. Terrible, right? Same answer as everything. Sunday school question is the right answer. Talk about Jesus. Jesus is with you right now. Jesus is caring for you right now. Jesus is in this situation right now. And he is participating in something with you. He's active. There's so many times that the best way to get other people to be better Christians is probably if we would just follow Jesus ourselves and let the Holy Spirit work in that rather than trying to force them to do something. So don't be sluggish. Be imitators. For when God made a promise to Abraham, uh-oh, here comes the covenant, since he had no one greater by him to swear, he swore by himself. So God wants to swear an oath. And when you swear an oath, you know, you go down to the justice of peace and you put your hand on the Bible and you swear or... Uh, Guys that were really trying to convince me of things, they'd say, I swear on my mother's grave. And of course, I would reply, don't bring your mom into this. You swear by some big, important thing. And so God wants to make this covenant with Abraham. And he wants to swear on something saying, may, may my relationship with this thing be broken if I break this covenant. So God swears upon himself because there's nothing bigger. There's nothing greater than God himself. He had no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. And Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves. That's why I just said in all their disputes. They swear by some, he guaranteed it with an oath that he swore upon himself. So what did he swear? And if I don't totally lose my place, I'm not going to read it all, but you can read it later. And it's really awesome. It's all in Genesis 15. And God tells Abraham, you're going to have so many kids. I'm going to make your land so great. Abraham said this dude from Damascus is his only heir and it's not even his kid and because he doesn't have any kids. He has all these amazing riches and when he dies, it's all going to go to some place else and his name won't live on. And God says, your name is going to live on for so long, Abraham. I'm going to make a promise to you. And so he makes a covenant. He tells Abraham Go get some three-year-old sheep, some three-year-old goats. Go get some birds and bring them all here and cut them all in half. So a three-year-old sheep. If you have a three-year-old sheep, it's kind of like having a brand new car. Because a little baby new sheep means you had enough money to buy a sheep like this week, right? If you have a three-year-old sheep, that means that you've been able to pay for and care for a sheep for three years. 
So you've been taken care of already. So when he tells Abraham, go get me a three-year-old sheep, a three-year-old goat, he's kind of hinting at Abraham, you know I've been taking care of you for at least three years now, right? You know I've given you everything you need that you can have a big, fat, three-year-old sheep. This is 15, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. He was really asleep. The Lord said to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land, visitors or aliens, in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. Abraham gets a prophecy about Exodus and Moses hundreds of years before it ever happened. He's getting a prophecy about his great, 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 400 years grandkids. Wow. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant. He said to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river to the Euphrates. He marks out all this land and God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham is in a spot that a promise has been made to him by God. And what does Abraham do? He immediately does wrong and has Hagar have a child, which is Ishmael, which is totally wrong from what God is doing. And so does God just be like, oh, stupid, boom, and blows up Abraham and it's all over? No, he keeps his covenant because his covenant was about Abraham, not with Abraham. Which takes us back to the certainty. The, you might have a little heading, the certainty of God's promise. When we were saved, God put his spirit in us and we can seek after him. And never mind other people and never mind judging others. But gosh, by our own selves, here we are in Christ and as we run after him, he will mature us. He will mature us. Skip all the way down to 19. We have this as a sure, this is Hebrews 6:19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We have a certain and sure promise. One time I was uh, deep in wondering if I was predestined to go to heaven or if I was predestined to burn in hell. And because I was getting confused by a whole bunch of Calvinists and I just prayed and I was like, Lord, I don't want to be predestined to hell and spend my whole life seeking after you and get switched. And I was reading a book and it just explained the whole silliness of that. That if God's calling you to seek after him, he loves you and he's not going to turn you away. The book of Romans says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. My favorite guy in the Bible, besides Jesus and David and Moses and Solomon and Elijah, is the thief on the cross. Because what did that guy build? What stick house did he have? What gold house did he have? All he had, and was probably a lot dirtier than it says in the Bible, is he yelled at the other thief 
shut up and quit mocking this guy. He's dying and he doesn't, he didn't deserve to die, but we deserve to die. Jesus, will you remember me? That's the fruit that he built. That was the house that he, the thing that he built that's going to get tested by fire. All he has is telling the other thief to shut up and Jesus, will you remember me? And then he died. We have a steadfast anchor for our soul that we are saved and Jesus himself will mature us in that as we pursue him and run after it. And as far as everybody else goes, let them watch you. Let them be amazed at the light that God shines into their life from you and encourage them to do the same. But Romans 15, they're standing before their master on their own, not with you. And so let's continue to run after Jesus. Let's pray.